Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. I hope you're well and looking after yourself. This episode features Kim McGuinness, the Police and Crime Commissioner for Northumbria. Over the years, I've had so many messages from people wanting to hear more from politicians outside of Westminster. So here you go. And what better politician to talk to? Because the role itself is fascinating. It was created by the Coalition Government. We have Police and Crime Commissioners across the UK now. To my shame, Kim is the first Police and Crime Commissioner that I've featured on the show. But this is great because... It's about the politics of the specific role, which is not, it's kind of local politics, but it's also about policing and crime. So it has its own parameters. It's also about the size of the area that, that Kim covers. Also, it's a timely reminder that some of our best politicians are outside of Westminster. Um, so this has got, this is, it's got everything in there. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I spoke to Kim just before I, um, performed at Hexham at the beautiful Queen's Hall uh, on tour. So thank you to everyone who came to Darlington, Hexham and Bedford. They were all really enjoyable, brilliant gigs. Um, and tickets for future dates are available through the website mattford.com slash live. Uh, a few of the dates have sold out, Leeds, Brighton and Cardiff. But always check with me on Twitter at mattford because sometimes on the day spares are knocking around so uh, don't lose heart a lot of the other dates are very close to selling out as well um i'm at maidenhead at the northern farm arts center on saturday the 14th of march this saturday leeds on the 18th of march york on the 19th of march annick on the 20th south end on the 22nd cambridge on the 23rd london south bank on the 27th of march then in April, on the 2nd, I'm at the Cardiff Sherman Theatre. The 7th at the Newcastle Stand, always great fun. The 8th of April, the Glasgow Stand. The 9th of April, Aberdeen. The 10th of April, Chorley. What a few days that's going to be. Uh, on the um, 12th of April, the Camberley Theatre. The 17th of April, the Corby Cube. Um, the 23rd of April, Sh- oh, I've got some of these dates wrong again. What have I been doing? In April, I'm in Camberley, Corby, Shrewsbury and Exeter. And the Bristol Tobacco Factory on the 30th. And then in May, Gloucester, London, Maidstone, Nottingham at the Spiegel Tech. Can't wait. Sheffield, the Leadmill. I went there as a kid. Never dreamed I'd be playing it. Uh, Stafford, the Met, the London South Bank again. Um, uh, Eastleigh at the Berry. And uh, the 30th and 31st of May, two nights at the Edinburgh stand in, uh, in Edinburgh, obviously. Uh, and then an extra day added in, uh, on the 9th of June to the Brighton Comedia. So that's enough self-promotion for now. Um, I'll leave you with a brilliant chat I had with the Police and Crime Commissioner for Northumbria, Kim McGuinness. Delighted to be joined by the Police and Crime Commissioner for Northumbria, Kim McGuinness. Kim, you're the youngest Police and Crime Commissioner in the country and the only female Labour. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, it blows your mind, doesn't it? The only female Labour. That's quite, I mean, it's great for you, but 
there's something quite depressing about the facts. I actually think there's something quite depressing about both of those facts. So, um, I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I've had to get used to disclosing my age because when people say you're the youngest, people sort of expect you to be this 18-year-old girl. And actually, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, and I think it says something about the shape and size of politics that it is considered to be young to have a big job in politics at 34 years old. Um, you know, I, I've done quite a lot before this, um, and I think in terms of the only Labour woman, uh, I think um, maybe it's because it's a job that's predominantly attracted men. And my predecessor was a prominent, a brilliant woman. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see growth in our Labour group of women. I mean, it is. You are young to be doing this job, though, and I, I'm 37. But like, <laughs> I think it's not just that you're young to be in politics. It's a job that I th- maybe it is just because. Chiefs of police seem to be a bit older. Yeah, Therefore, a police be. and crime commissioner sounds like something that people do at the end of their career. You yeah. imagine almost a grey old bloke. Yeah, and actually, you know, if you look into, certainly into the PCC group and you look into particularly the Labour ones, you've got quite a few ex-ministers, you know, got yes. Paddy Tiffin, uh, Willie oh, Back, you know, gr- absolutely brilliant, brilliant men. They, they really are and they've had wonderful careers and this, they've chosen to do this and many of them say, you know, it's the best job they've ever had and I think that's testament to what the change you can make and, and so on. But I think it's really important to, to stress that you don't want two chief constables. You know, you don't want two older people necessarily or two people the same, two people with the same operational experience doing this job. My job is to represent the people. And so if we want to represent the people, we have to cut a shape of the people. And the people are not all old white blokes. In terms of the office itself, it's only existed since the coalition government. It was something that David Cameron brought in. Do you think the public are aware of police and crime commissioners and what they do? I think um, awareness grows. I think, you know, any, like anything like this, it's a bit of a slow burner. And I, I think definitely the turnouts in the elections, I mean, my by-election, the turnout was 15%. It's a low level of awareness. But I think it's incumbent on us to show what we can do because actually what's more important to people than their personal safety, than policing, than the issues that surround crime. And so we've got to get the message out that these jobs are there. But yeah, they're relatively new and I don't think enough people know about them. In terms of the specific responsibilities you have, you can hire and fire the chief constable. Yep. Have you hired and fired anyone No, yet? no, I've got a great chief constable. He's come all the way through Northumbria. You know, I think that we started our relationship in July with, with trust. Um, I think we were really, I was really clear that as long as um, there's trust and as long as there's assurance, then I'm going to be happy and, and as long as the force is going well. And I've been really pleased with the way that things are going and I think that we've got along very well and found kind of our groove in terms of me holding the force to account, the direction that we're travelling in and all of that. So, no, I've luckily have not had to fire a chief constable and hire a new one. So if, if you wanted to fire a chief constable, theoretically, yeah. not the one you currently have, what does the law say? What are the parameters? Could you just say you're fired? Or do, does that firing have to meet certain criteria that you would have to explain to, say, the Home Secretary? I, I've never done it. And I, would, and I thankfully have not had cause to look into that. But I do think that it is genuinely a discretionary thing of the, of the Police and Crime Commissioner. And I know certainly other places people have left uh, and new chiefs have been brought in. Um, but I do think, you know, it's, that's a very, very big and severe decision. And, you know, forces do fail and chiefs do fail just the same as anybody else. But it's a big, 
big decision you know and and the role is is this is such that you do hold that kind of power in your hand along with the budget along with the accountability as along with the police and crime plan and so it's something i think you would have to take very seriously and under consideration it's i don't think it's something you can just do because you don't like them so holding the how do you hold the police to account is there a, a mechanism that all police and crime commissioners have to follow or can you just decide whatever sort of accountability model you want to create i think you've got a lot of freedom over it everybody who i know has um i mean this is step over but everybody who i know has has a month a monthly at least scrutiny meeting so you'll bring the chief chief officer team in there'll be a series of things that you'll you'll probably notify them i notify them in advance of the things i want to talk about and um, there's things on a forward plan and then you kind of go through a scrutiny process in a similar way as you would to a council or certain aspects of parliament ministerial stuff um the difference is actually it's very much me and them yes um but people are we minute those meetings and they're available to the public and then sort of i try and make a point of communicating as well as i can to people you know what what it is we're talking about so for example you know recently i have had cause to seek assurance that that the force are ready for coronavirus in terms of both supporting the public but then also in terms of being able to cope with lots of absence if it if it happened um, and obviously they were able to provide assurances I did that outside a meeting I just asked them in you know I, I sat down with the chief and asked him and we got the answers and and that's it can be as formal and informal I think it must be such a strange relationship that you have with the police because you're effectively the public's voice the public's eyes and ears yeah. you're there on behalf of the yeah. public of Northumbria to hold these people to account but in the end these are the people that you must end up spending so much time with you do you end up spending a lot of time with them and I have great admiration for the for the police and I think we have some we've got cracking cops in our area you know I I spent some time with some police officers last night in Gateshead they know their people so well the people know them so well um they've got they they know exactly what's going on in that area it's brilliant and you do spend a lot of time with them um but yeah it is it is an it, i think it's an unusual relationship more for them because it's only been in existence since 2012 but actually for people like me who've come from a local government background it's quite normal you know that that's what we've always been we've been the people's representatives uh, to a council or to a force or, or to to whatever um and the way i look at it me and winton the chief we should be the left and right arm you know, of, of the same thing. We should be travelling in the same direction. We should both know where we're going. We should both understand what the people's priorities are. Yes, it's my job to feed that in. But, of course, he's got huge operational um, considerations to make and, and he's free to do that. And that's really, really important that he has that autonomy. And are there, or is there, a kind of network nationally? Is there, like, a, a, a forum for police and crime commissioners? Yeah, there is. There's a, the, the, it's a little bit like the Local Government Association yeah. or, or whatever. It's the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners, the APCC, um, snappily, night, snappily, snappily titled. Um, and we come together, um, I think it must be about quarterly, we come together. Um, and then similar to anything else, you know, there's a, there's a Conservative group and a Labour group and, and an independent group um, who meet and talk separately. So, yeah, it's there's sim- similar structures to other other forms of government. And do you find when you talk to the police and crime commissioners that they have a similar experience to you? 
I think it's really mixed. I think the other thing about police and crime commissioner areas, and I suppose you know, maybe the metro mayors might say the same thing. So much of it is dependent on your on your landscape. You know, yeah. I, I think that we're the luckiest people in the world. We've got everything here. Northumbria covers two two major cities: Newcastle and Sunderland. I've got right up to the borders. You know, the Scottish borders, Berwick, um, all of the beautiful Northumberland countryside in between, the coastline. So it's a really really diverse area, and so much of our experience comes from representing the people of that area so different areas have different have different priorities and you know there's some areas that don't have to think about that huge swathe of rurality there's other areas that definitely don't have to think about having two major football clubs so it's it's, and you know those things bring challenges and quirks and and different experiences and what are are there particular types of crime that perhaps disproportionately affect people in Northumbria to the rest of the UK? Um, it's actually one of the safest places in the UK, so the, your your chance of coming to personal harm is lower than in Northumbria than it is anywhere else wow. in the country, which I think is something to be really proud of. But for me, my job is to keep it that way. Yes. You know, I don't want to see that change. I, I want it to, to stay that safe, and so it's about getting getting in there and, and understanding what causes the crime that we have and, and nipping it in the bud and keeping it safe. And also keeping... Um, because it, it doesn't happen by accident, that. You know, it comes from having a really good police force and really good relationships across the region and, and all of that. And I think it's incumbent on me to, to keep it like that. But in terms of the types of crime that are more prevalent, I suppose it's a big area, so what affects people in Newcastle compared to what would affect people yeah, in Hexham exactly. is going to be different. But um, are there... I mean, where I live in, in London, moped gangs have been a real problem. Yeah. Is that a problem here or is something else the main concern? Yeah, so I think increasingly we're talking about things like county lines. Yes. Um, increasingly, we're, we, you know, we talk about um, the exploitation of vulnerable people. Um, we, we don't have a knife crime problem like in other areas or a massive gang problem. I'm not saying it's not there, but it, it's, it's different. Um, and so violence here, the same as anywhere else, is up. But things like burglary you know, are, are down. Um, also, the other thing that I think a lot of people don't think about, unless you live there, huge, huge, huge miles of countryside, and so you end up with specific rural crimes, so um, wildlife crime. Well, uh, like sort of horse rustling. Or... Yeah, sheep rustling, yeah. Really, sheep rustling, uh, yeah, really? Or, or um, poaching, hair coursing, some pretty horrible stuff, um, which, I, you know, certainly is somebody who could... I'm from Newcastle, born and raised, and I've always got out into the countryside, but I, I certainly... That has been a learning curve for me. So why isn't knife crime uh, uh, the same problem here that it is at, in other parts of the country? I think lots of different factors. Um, it's probably there's probably demographic issues. I think there's probably geographical. We, we're quite far off. Yeah. If you come here on the train today, you know that. Right. <laughs> you know, when you get below below Durham, you've got quite a way to go before the next city. So there's probably a little bit of that, and and perhaps not so much that gang culture. Um, I, so I I think there's there's lots of contributory factors, but then equally um, probably a a support system in terms of public services that have really clung on despite kind of years and years and years of cut. Um, a good, strong, proactive police force. I think there's loads of factors, um, but I don't think that we're immune to it. And I think it, it's the sort of thing that we have to be very wary of and, and think, right, how do we keep it that way? How do we make the right interventions? How do we keep our young people safe? All of those things. County lines is an issue and a phrase that has captured yeah. the national imagination. Mm-hmm. Without sounding stupid, 
I sort of know what it is. It's where young people are basically used to supply drugs. Mm-hmm. Why is it called county lines? Is it that people then deal it elsewhere yeah. so that two different police forces can't communicate? Uh, well, I think this, that's part of it. So I think exploiting boundaries is one of the things. Um, but I think it's about drugs coming from major city hubs or town hubs and going out to smaller towns or to rural areas and using ex- basically exploited people. I mean, that's not mince it. It yes. is exploited people, victims, uh, to to traffic those drugs, and it, it's sort of it's it's everything. It's it's human trafficking. It's it's um, the exploitation of the vulnerable. It's child it's child criminal exploitation. It's it's all of those things um, put into one big business model to make Mr. Big a lot of cash. And all the people from the pe- drugs, the so people they use from, from the people they use uh, as dealers, are they always young people? I don't think so. No, not always young people. Sometimes it's homeless people, people with addiction, people who are vulnerable in other ways, um, people with learning difficulties. Sometimes they, they get into people's homes. They use a thing, you know, a mate crime type um, approach where they'll befriend somebody and then worm their way into their property. It's called cuckooing, um, like cuckoos who yeah. worm their way into nests. It's it's really insidious, um, and it's definitely something that we've got to focus on because those kids and those vulnerable people are are victims being criminalized for the benefit of other people it's a complex crime it is serious organized crime and is this something that has existed for a long time that's been given a new phrase or is this a new phenomenon in terms of the the model of that crime look i think drug drugs have always been there and they've always been moved and and they've always been they've always been moved from place to place and sold across boundaries and all that kind of thing but i think this is a phenomenon of of wider um wider exploitation of people and and sort of the the creation of bigger enterprises almost um that mop up all of these different insidious things to to wider gain um and it's like anything else it evolves and they use new technology and sometimes you know they use the rail networks and sometimes they don't and sometimes they use uber and sometimes they use buses and sometimes it's taxis and and sometimes it's hotels and sometimes it's people's houses but whatever it is it's it's the exploitation of people to move drugs for the benefit of other people one of the roles of the police and crime commissioner is to draw up a is that a crime action plan? A police and crime plan. Police and crime plan. Yes. So drawing up a police and crime plan, is, is that something that has to have meet specific targets? Is it, is it a blank piece of paper? Are there certain things that you have to fulfil within that, that plan? So I inherited my police and crime plan um, from Vera and um, we're running with that plan and then, and then I've, I've added things that, that came from my manifesto sort of as, as built on things that we want to talk about because, of course, I have that mandate. But when I, you know... It, Post-election in May, touch wood, uh, I get back in again because I I think we're doing some really good stuff. I'll do a new police and crime plan. And for me, I think the right thing to do is to start with a blank piece of paper, but with an understanding of what the operational issues that the force feed into us are. And for me, what I want to do is an absolutely massive public consultation. I think that we need to really listen to people and really understand what it is that they're experiencing. And I think it's about getting into um, all different types of people in Northumbria because just like anything else, if you sort of advertise or this focus group, you'll get often either people who've got one specific issue or you'll get people who are usually used to engaging with you because yes. they'll go through the normal channels. Whereas I think it's important that we really get in there and we speak to young people and we speak to older people and we get into different types of communities and understand what it is they want to form the police and crime plan and truly inform the police of what is the priority for people. And how specific 
does a crime plan have to be? Are you saying to people in, say, Newcastle, I want 105 extra police by the end of 2022? Or are you saying the crime plan says we will aim to reduce uh, you know, crime on public transport as much as possible? Like how, how specific are those pledges? I think, I think some of them are really specific. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I know that we are currently recruiting 100, 185 police officers above our current establishment. To do that, we have to recruit over 470 to replace the people who are retiring or who are moving on. And so there's some things you know specifically, and there are specific measures and targets, and you, we can target the police and say, we want that delivered. But I do think that there's other things that are not necessarily, oh, I want to see this crime reduced by this amount, but human stories are really, really important. Yeah. I've focused a lot on prevention, prevention of crime, getting in at the, at the roots, understanding what's causing it, and, and stopping it from happen, happening through interventions. Now, if I didn't make those interventions, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily know what would happen to that young person. But that person's story is so very important to their future success, to their avoidance of crime, to potentially um, the, the, the success and the experiences of a sibling or other young people in their circle. And so I think we have to be really clear that it's got to be a mix of, yes, we've got to provide some really clear objectives that the police have to reach and that the, the public can hold me accountable for, and I can hold the force accountable for, but we also have to recognise that these are human things. Yeah. These are like real people's real life experiences, and you, you can't explain that in numbers. So can you take up an individual case for the police? Um, so people can complain to me, yeah. Yeah, and, I can, and I can go to the police and say, can you explain to me what has happened with this? Um, but there's official complaints processes, which are you know, through official channels. And if you say, <laughs> God damn it, I want to see that file, would they, would, would they have to show you know, there's formal, there's formal lines, yeah. and of course, the, your things are shared on a need-to-know basis and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but no, I, I can't interfere with their operational activity. And so it is absolutely acceptable for the chief to say, operationally, I can't do that. Because and it would harm these people or it would be, you know, a breach of this or, or whatever. Or they might say, yes, in this case, it's appropriate. And they might say, yes, in this case, it's appropriate. I mean, it's such a pragmatic role you've got. A lot of it is. It feels almost beyond party politics, but what... I mean, I kind of know because it would be about resourcing and spending, but what would Labour police and crime commissioners do that Tory ones wouldn't? I I think you're right. A lot of it is about budgets and spending and what you spend your money on. To me, this is... I agree. I'm I'm a pragmatist, actually. And a lot of, I think, and I think a lot more politics should be pragmatic. I agree, Well, I don't know, is it? I think, we, I think we have to be, it is our job to make practical decisions on behalf of the public. But equally, this is the best opportunity that I know of to put Labour values in office. You know, to think, right, how do we, how do we deliver the best for the most people? How do we make sure that police resources are allocated to the best benefit of our communities? How do we reduce crime? How do we reduce deprivation in order to reduce crime because that that's what made me want to do the job I think that um, 10 years of austerity lots of public service cuts have led people into deprivation and that deprivation is, is has translated directly into crime and it's translated directly into violent crime and so Yes, we have to be, you know, I'm going to say it, yes, we have to be really tough on crime. You know, we've got to fight crime where we find it, but also we've got to actually now get to the bottom of the causes. We need to understand what's going on. I'm laughing as I say, but it's not funny. We have to, we have to get to the root causes of what's causing crime. And we've got to try and solve some of those problems to turn the tap off. And if we don't do that, we'll have ever-increasing demand, more press public services, more press police officers, and crime will keep going up. 
I mean, that's why tough on crime, tough on the cause of crime <laughs> is such a, was such a brilliant phrase because yeah. for a lot of Labour people, it's summed up where they are, yeah. is that they take crime seriously and they do want people to be punished. Still in the manifesto of 2017, yeah. <laughs> was, I'm not sure it made it to 2019. I mean, I'm not sure there'll be much analysis of the... Uh, doesn't seem too much analysis of the 2019 manifesto inside the party at the moment. But, um, I mean, do you, do you still think that within the party there is a... I mean, Labour will always be on side with the tough on the causes of crime element. Do you get the sense that within the Labour Party there is a, a genuine desire to be tough on crime, to, uh, to do the hard stuff? Yes. I, well, first of all, I don't necessarily think that they're mutually exclusive. Mm. I think that, that actually getting to the causation, that, that is tough. It's the hard route. You'll hear chief constable after police officer after expert tell you you cannot arrest your way out of crime. Every person who goes to jail is a failing of the system. And I I firmly believe in that. I think that's really important. And I think often jail further criminalises people and we've got got to do something about that that ever-breaking system. But at the same time, we've got to have good routes to deal with with repeat offenders and, and repeat criminals. And I think there's... There's stress right across the system from policing to the criminal justice system to the probation service. All of that is under massive cost, um, a massive financial pressure, and that fails communities. And so, yes, I, do, I think that I think that labour is the right place to deal with policing because at the moment. Yeah, we do have to be tough on crime, but I think we're seeing the Tories, in my opinion, simplifying these issues. You know, it's about car theft and and, a very simplistic view of county lines, a very simplistic view of murder. These things are complex. They have multiple causes. You can't just go and arrest loads of people and fix the problem. You might fix it for a couple of years, but once they're back on the street, it's not going to be any better. Some of the causes of crime are so complex, I suppose you're restricted in what you can actually affect in this role because if it is the uh, product of unemployment and the things that go along with that there are certain things you can affect as police and crime commissioner where you can make the force or the surface more uh, more um, you know community based and more accountable but what can you do to tackle unemployment? Well, so as well as um, having that accountability line into the police, I'm responsible for all the commissioning. So I commission all the victim services and various other services. And then um, a proportion of the budget that I have, I get to spend on on these prevention-oriented projects. So I've set up a violence reduction unit that brings together key players right across the region from business to councils to schools to housing to look at this issue of reducing crime by getting in at the root and looking at the health um, inequalities and, and the general inequalities and, you know, saying as a region, because actually in this region, this is the biggest regional structure you know, the mayor's north of Tyne, the council, six councils, 16 constituencies. And so getting all of those people in a room as one body yes. and saying, this one body <laughs> and saying, this is, this is the approach that we're going to commit to. We're going to make real changes in our systems to stop crime, to, to reduce crime by improving people's lives. And that's, that's gone down really well. People are ready to do it. They want to do it. And I think that's because it affects everybody. And so I think you have the, the influence and the ability to bring people together and make it everyone's problem. Um, oh, that's kind of the approach I've taken it, anyway. That's a good approach. <laughs> Thankfully, I haven't had to batter them into it. They've, <laughs> no. they've, they've quite happily come and sat around the table and, and have that conversation. So on commissioning, mm. can you commission 
private sector, you could. third sector stuff to deliver You could, services. and I think people... And, oh, yeah, we commission loads of third sector organisations um, to do our victim services. We have Victims First, which is a charity, and um, all of our specialist victim services, people like Rape Crisis and um, the Angelou Centre, which is a, a women's centre who deal with um, women from black and minority ethnic groups, um, We're Sad Women in Need, uh, youth... Um, Northeast Youth, you know, there are loads of third sector organisations because we all know that as, as public services have been cut, you know, it's the third sector that have mm. come through and really are kind of running these these vital services. So loads of the commissioning is through third sector. Not very much of it for me is through private sector organisations, but police and crime commissioners and other commissioners are, are perfectly able to do that if they so wish. When you're describing the, the, the vast swathe of land that you cover mm. and all the people that live there and pulling together all these different agencies and, yeah, and politicians... There's a lot of miles in my Ford Focus. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's, how many people live in the area that you cover? Uh, a couple of million. That's a huge <laughs> yeah, amount of people. it's pretty big. How hard is it to be accountable with all those you know, citizens and voters? Well, I think it's my job to get out there, you know, and, and I do. I, I go out and visit these organisations. I was at a community meeting last night in, in uh, Gateshead, and I do that really, really frequently and, and keep people up to date online. I mean, technology is a great tool for, for people being able to catch up with you. They can tend to find you anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's a big area, but I think... Like I say, it's, it's my job to get out there and just do it. But it's hard enough for an MP to get around 70,000 people, let alone 2 million. <laughs> do you think, right, in terms of campaigning, in oh, just campaigning the pure politics hard, yeah. of it, how do you prioritise where to door knock or where to oh. phone bank? Where do <laughs> well, you start? A lot of it's who fancies doing it with us. <laughs> OK, OK. Um, but, you know, we, we, we do try and, get, I try and get out across... All of the 16 constituencies, um, you know, we're, we're obviously out there campaigning at the moment. Um, and whether that's to attend community meetings or to go and do some door knocking or whatever, you know, we work together. We work together, socialists, aren't we? we work together. Not <laughs> <laughs> well, um, always. Not always. But you know, we do. We are quite a good united region, and there's there's good support across across the piece. And I think the big key is, you know, I think often we're accused of only going to the places that you know they'll, they'll go out with all those people because they'll vote for them. Actually. No, we spent a lot. I spent a lot of time in in what you wouldn't consider to be traditional labour areas. It's important that I represent those people as well. And actually, you know, we say just like MPs or like anybody else, I represent anyone regardless of their political affinity. And so it's important for me to get out there and speak to them as well. How hard is it managing the different politicians in the in the the region? I mean, I, I remember. <laughs> I mean, I remember working for a Labour elected mayor and even just dealing with three local Labour MPs was really difficult. And they often had really different opinions to a Labour mayor and would publicly talk about those. You've got God knows how many different politicians in your area of various different parties. Yeah, so there's, I guess there's 16 constituencies, six local authorities, one metro mayor. Am I missing anything? I I, I think that's... Roughly, I don't know how many councillors. I haven't got a clue. I couldn't even tell you. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Um, But actually, I have found... I think the thing is, as long as you've got the the best interest of people... And the other thing is, I'm very open with everybody. I don't mince my words. I don't tell fibs. I don't try and, and, you know, say this to this person and that to the other. I think I'm straight as a die. and, And that way, everybody knows where they're at. And you can just work with them yeah. and sometimes you, you know you might have to say well this is what I'm going to do 
Um, but I try to be as collaborative as possible. And, you know, I'm happy to work with it. We've got a couple of Tory, three now, Tory MPs in that region. I'm happy to work with them. If we're working for the betterment of the people, I'll work with them. That's, that's really important. Because Labour were against police and crime. Initially, yeah. Is, that, is there any sort of lasting legacy of that? Are some Labour politicians still cynical about the office itself? I've not had anybody say that they're cynical, from the Labour Party say that they're cynical about the office. I mean, you have to, you have to remember, pre, prior to me was Vera Bird, you know, she, she was a, a, a big name for police and crime commissioners and probably one of the more proactive in the country, um, very well known. And so I think with the work that she did, particularly around women and girls, which I, I've carried on with, um, I think that locally and probably nationally the parties definitely come round to the really good work that Labour Police and Crime Commissioners can do because you can make a direct change in your community, you can make direct impact and you can do it quite quickly um, and so I think that that's probably why the party definitely came round and thought actually these people are doing good work in their communities, representing our party really really well, representing our values really well um, and that's I think that's important. I don't know what it's like elsewhere in the country. We had, a, we had a, a Lib Dem candidate stand against us who, who said he was going to abolish himself. I mean, I kind of wish he had a... <laughs> not, not as police and crime commissioner. Well, you always... I mean, that always exists in some elections somewhere in the oh, UK. Yeah. There's like the abolish, the abolish the Welsh Assembly Party. And yeah, like that. Yeah. They exist everywhere. It's like, well, I mean, you know, UK, if I'm going to go into Europe, take up an elected seat to abolish myself, you can't. That's not your power. <laughs> but do... Um, when you think about um, the sort of the politics of the area that you cover, uh, particularly for the Labour Party, uh, people are starting. You know, the, the election results seem to bear this out. You cover a diverse area, and the cities are still quite Labour. But within the North East, obviously, with, with Brexit, mm-hmm. and then, you know, people remember the North East mm-hmm. on a, on on referendum night as being the moment when people start to think, well, actually, the country's voted a different way to how we thought they were going to vote. And the, the collapse of, of Labour in the Red Wall or the Northern Areas or whatever people talk about it. Have you seen, I mean, even in your relatively short career, those, those changes start to, in a way, punish the Labour Party? I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely been a, a, you know, a community shift that has been spoken about, particularly when you talk about Brexit, um, that perhaps Labour haven't being true to the values of the people of this region. I mean, I, I'm from Newcastle. Before this, I was a cabinet member in Newcastle, and obviously Newcastle voted to remain. It was one of the only areas in, in the region that did. Um, and so there, not necessarily. But elsewhere, yeah, you, you know, you do get that. You know, people, you know, we asked for this and it wasn't delivered. But I think on crime issues and on kind of policing it's a different set of things to talk about. Yes. We ran a by-election in July. It was right in the middle of all of this. And people were very, very happy to have a conversation with us about crime and policing. I think they probably were pleased to not be talking about that. Somebody was knocking on the door and not talking about Brexit. I think that was one thing. Yeah. Um, but it matters to everybody. And so when you talk to people, it's, it's much easier to have a conversation with them about that than it is about Brexit or about government more generally. But from, like your, from a personal point of view, what a great position to be in because you've got so much power to change people's lives for the better. You cover a huge area, we can have a huge impact. You're a politician, but with a specific remit yeah. that takes you out of all the other stuff. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, all of, mind you, all of the other stuff plugs into it, really. Yes. It's, it's really important that we talk about the other stuff. You know, everything has an impact on crime. So 
housing and deprivation and benefits and employment and all of that stuff. And so you have to have an eye to, to what's going on nationally and locally with all of those things in order to do this job properly. And I think that's really important. But yeah, in terms of being able to have an honest conversation with the public that, that transcends some of the national politics that, that is turning people off, it has been refreshing. And we, we were able to have, in the middle of all of that Brexit, as a local Labour Party, a really positive campaign. And I think nobody expected that, but I think everybody felt it. And having had that positive experience, having this role really specific to do with policing and crime, do you think it would be something that you could expand to other areas of, of public policy? Could you have an elected health commissioner or an elected education commissioner or is that oh i don't know i've never really given any thought i think i mean we obviously much. there's national commissioners isn't there in terms of government appointed commissioners that's what vera went on to do she went to be national victims commissioner there's a modern slavery commissioner and children's commissioner and, and all of those people who take that kind of advisory professional role to government in a non-party political sense but still massively political um, and I suppose that works quite well but I'm not so sure I think um, many of those things obviously are now being um, given as powers to mayors um, and I think it's interesting where devolution's going to go because obviously we're massive devolved powers yeah you know as, as police and crime commissioners it's it's it is devolution in action and then we've got a number of uh, metro mayors with varying different sets of powers depending on where they are and what the specific deal was and obviously certainly before government were very keen to do more of that and I think they're still making that noise but at the same time I do feel like a lot of stuff's being sucked back to the centre and kind of you do get that impression that Boris was the ultimate control for him and Dominic Cummins in number 10 and I, I do I get that feeling and so I think it's quite interesting to see how that's all playing out. It's such a fascinating part of the country remember the North East Referendum where the <laughs> votes of the Northeast rejected a, a regional assembly. In a weird way, it's kind of been not put upon them in a different way, but there's been devolution through other means. Yeah. Do you think there would now be, now that people have a metro mayor, that they have a police and crime commissioner, do you think people might say, well, actually, now a regional assembly is something that people of the Northeast might be more amenable to? I don't know. I mean, I think um, people like to be represented. Definitely what people in this region definitely think about the finances. And that's probably a little bit because politicians in this region have been honest about the cuts that we felt. And so over the last 10 years, you know, huge, huge swears, huge cuts, probably in this region, bigger than anywhere else in the country. And I think politicians here have been really honest with the public about that because they've had to. Um, But it does mean that they think about the money and they know how much their politicians get, and they know what they think their value is, and so you have to work really, really hard for them, and I think that's important. Um, and so I don't know what would happen if that referendum were to come up, but I think that definitely to be successful in this region, you have to prove yourself, you have to deliver, and you have to do stuff. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's all about funding. The police precept is something people will see yeah. on their council tax slips. Um, is that a good thing for accountability? Do you think that people can see specifically how much they're paying towards the police? So, look, I think the funding formula... I mean, God, I could get into a really long, boring discussion about the funding formula because that's what's happened to me. But... <laughs> <laughs> But I don't, I don't think that anything that passes on the weight of responsibility to the most vulnerable and the poorest in society for their, for their public service that they need the most is a good thing. And so fundamentally, I think that the financing for police and crime should come from the centre. I think that the precept is quite a simplistic accountability t- tool because it's very, very hard to say in the wider context of a £200 million budget mm. what that couple of million quid would, would pay for. Um, but, obviously, it does make you think very hard about what you do with the precept, because generally when you consult people, the people who respond are happy to pay a bit more for better service. Yeah. But the reality of doing that, you know, you, you have to think about what does that money mean to that family, and how do I... How do I honestly say that that's the right thing to do so this time round, for example the government asked us to raise it by 10 quid that's over seven percent here we did it by two percent because i just think that the people here have had enough put upon them and i'm not saying that i'd be able to do that every year but i think that 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 was an important decision for me to make you know and i did that in collaboration with the force with some consultation in co- collaboration with the with the um, council leaders and so we all came to an agreement but it, it's it's very difficult when there's a proportion of your of your forced budget that is reliant on that, and you know that not everyone can necessarily afford it. But that's a positive pressure for you, I suppose, isn't it? To an extent, to to, 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 to always be mindful of the value of other people's money. Yeah, but I can, and my concern is that not everybody is that mindful of the value of other people's <laughs> money. I think the existence of the precept and the way that the the government have put that into council tax bills in that way, along with things like the social care precept and other things like that, the fire mm-hmm. precept. Um, shows that not everybody is that mindful. And when you're saying, oh, we'll just ask everyone for 10 quid more, it's, it's an out. It is, it is <laughs> to a lot of people, it's a lot. Uh, what are the other roles it you might have? might not be to Boris, but it's a lot. <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> it's um, police sergeant training. Mm-hmm. It's up to you to ensure they're properly trained to scrutinise crime recording by their teams. I mean, how on earth do you get involved in that? Well, again, that's an, it's, it's about me making sure the force are doing it. Okay. And, you know, being able to say, do you have the appropriate structures in place? How many people are you getting through? You know, how is that going? Similar with the new officers, you know, we're uplifting quite quickly. Um, I've made a point of going to meet all of the new recruits. They're very polite, very keen. It's great. Um, but, yeah, it's about me asking the right questions and, and, and asking the force to, to show me the evidence that they're doing it. It's not necessarily that I'll kind of put my kit on and go down there and deliver the training myself. I don't think anybody would want that. <laughs> There's something... And I don't want to belittle how important it all is, but... There's something about policing that's really cool in terms of like <laughs> yeah, areas of public of policy. Like, yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, there's like tasers and vans. Maybe and that's like, why there's loads of blokes. Well, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> tasers and vans. But do you Dogs, ha- How often will you go on like, or do you think, when you see politicians go on like a dawn raid, mm-hmm. like Priti Patel did something in Liverpool recently, do you think, 
I'm, I'm going to do that. Or do you I, think I can only do that once in a while? I or? do it once in a while. I've not been on a Dawn raid yet. Um, I'm not a fan of Dawn. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I, I will go on a Dawn raid. Um, but I have been out on operations with the police. I think um, the other thing that you always have to remember in a job like this, you represent them as well. And for me, it, it frustrates me to the hilt when people criticise frontline police officers. Yeah. You know, yes, of course, there were individual failings. And yes, of course, you'll get bad apps like anything else. But when people criticise frontline policing in general without understanding their experiences and knowing what they're going through, because no, nobody does that job for money. No. You know, they do it to protect people and to support people and to, um, and to, and to catch bad guys and, and for all the right reasons. And so I think it's really important that I understand that. And so I've been out on operations with them. Um, I did a big thing on the Metro line recently. Um, I haven't, like I say, I haven't done a dawn raid. I've done a 999 run with... Um, with, with specials actually in a van wow. was, you know what but it makes you realise drivers like I'm sat in the front seat screaming at get out of the way and they're so calm and I'm like oh my god <laughs> but it was it was um, you know <laughs> in all seriousness it's really important to see what they do I've been out yeah. in the nighttime economy in Sunderland and, and various other things and I think you know it's important to get out and understand their experiences know what their problems are you know what are they finding difficult where are the resource pressures um you know what are the parts of their job that they wish they didn't have to do that they really love doing um all of that and so yeah i think you've got to do it but i think you have to be careful that you're not just you know putting on a yellow jacket and looking like that's all you're interested in no of course i I, I suppose what people expect from the modern police force is completely different to even when we were growing up well, you know, I think what's interesting is what people expect from the modern police force is exactly what they expected when we were growing up. But they also expect all the new stuff as well. And okay. that's what's really difficult. So, so what is the new stuff? Well, so things like so you're much more likely to get uh, to be a victim of a crime online. So, you know, we were talking about this um, last night at this community meeting and the, the, the um, neighbourhood police officer was kind of going through the list of the crimes in the area. And he was saying, you know, the damage to these vehicles, to the value of whatever, we got this guy, he went to court, etc., etc. And then he got to, to one crime and he said, you know, a woman in, Green, in Greenside um, was um, a victim of um, a cybercrime and to the value of eight grand. <gasps> and you think, right, so you just gave us four incidents of criminal damage and none of them added up to eight grand. And that woman in one fell swoop, £8,000. And what sort of cybercrime was it? It's um, like a... I can't remember the name for it, but it, it's where somebody rings up, pretends to be somebody of importance, so tells her to go and draw them. And, yeah, and oh, paid in somewhere, no. you know, scammers. And it was, it was intercepted and it was stopped. But that's because oh, the police are skilled at that. And the fact is that those things are really high value. They're, again, very insidious, very difficult to detect. The police have to have a lot of skill and a lot of resource. But at the same time, if I went out there in Hexham now and said to people on the streets, what, what do you want to see? They'll say more police on the streets. Yeah. And so we have to balance that. And that's really tough. That's tough for the force. It's tough for us. Because, you know, Boris is 20,000. Everyone expects them on the end of their street next week. It's not going to happen. It takes a long time to train them. And then when they are trained, we need people dealing with things like that. So with cybercrime, how much of it is fought locally or regionally as opposed to nationally? um, Quite a lot. So there's a cybercrime um, unit, but then there's also national units and regional units. So, yeah, they work together because it defies borders nationally and internationally. And so it's a real mix, but they're very good at working cross-border. And is this something the police say to you, actually, this is a growing yeah. major problem? This is something we should have more resources for rather than... Yeah, increase, you know, increase. We've, we've got to keep ahead of 
the criminals. We've got to know what they're doing. We've got to know how they're abusing things like social media. Um, during my campaign, I went to a school and spoke to six formers, and all of them knew how to buy drugs on Snapchat. The force have got to keep on top of that, and that takes technology and it takes expertise, and it takes. And yet, there's always still that thing. Well, you know, we need to get officers away from desks and out on the streets. It's like, well, they're not going to find that out on the street, are they? So it's a it's a balance. And. Because people do deserve to see their police officers as well. Yes, and it, it has a benefit. Yeah, community in intelligence other things, is really yeah. important. Um, with uh, the, your sort of office, yeah, are you allowed to appoint political staff? No. None at all? No, it's really it's an, it's an unusual kind of quirk of the legislation. I don't have any political staff at all. So, that seems ludicrous. Yeah, it's, it's unusual. Um, and actually, it's, it's fine. I'm all right. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting by. Um, but, yeah, it is, it is quite unusual. You know, I think most mayors have an, an aspect of political staff. Uh, obviously, MPs do as well. So, yeah, I, I don't have any party political staff in my office at all. And, uh, and actually, everybody who was there before... I know I'm the same party, but, you know, different priorities and very different people... It's the same people who were there for Vera. Well, there's a benefit to that, having the kind of the DNA of the organisation. Yeah, yeah. But I think... But yeah, you see new MPs get elected, everyone's out and new people are in, and it's, it's not like that at all. No, but I mean, I, I know elements of the public are suspicious of political staff, but they, they perform a, a yeah. vital function for, particularly people like yourself, with direct accountability yeah. to the people, because they can give you advice that... Other, effectively, civil service or local authorities' yeah. advice, staff can't give you. And their staff in the office, they're experienced. You know, a lot of them have come from the previous police authority. You know, yeah. it used to be police authority that looked after um, looked after police accountability, um, and so they know the policy inside out and and how the accountability structures work and and all of that. And there's some incredible people who've got such in depth policy knowledge on. Um, on things like modern slavery, on women and girls, on um, trafficking, exploitation, county lines, drugs, all, all of the rest of it. So really talented staff, but yeah, no, there's not that kind of political advisor at all. That seems really harsh to deprive <laughs> you of that as a, well, as a resource. I would love it if you would lobby for that. Oh, I'm not lobbying for it, but I, th- I think you'd be more, more effective than me at lobbying for, for that. I don't think the public are going to have too much sympathy in that on a special advisor or spin doctor. No, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and you're always thinking about that accountability. Yes, and it is important. Um, just to return to kind of the modern police force, the tone in which the police conduct their business... Um, has changed dramatically in, mm. in, in our lives. With issues of race, sexuality, mm-hmm. gender, how much further does the police have to go, really, do you think, in, in terms of the public trust? So I think in terms of... There's two answers to that question. So I think in terms of dealing with crimes associated with those things, the police are getting much, much better. I think, And I think our force are very, very good. Um, and I'm quite proud of that because we have had rise in hate crime in the region, um, similar to everywhere else, particular pockets of it. Um, you know, the southern part of the region is, is worse than the northern part of the region, although more is reported in Newcastle. Um, and so the force have become really good at getting into communities and understanding them and working with them to build public trust. And I'm really proud of that work. I think it's great to see and I want them to keep doing it. However... We've definitely got a long way to go in terms of being a police force that's reflective of communities, and that's a national thing. You know, we need our force to represent the people. We need more women, more BME people in the force, um, more LGBT plus people in the force, 
and and that's through this kind of uplift process that everybody's going through at the moment albeit it's not as many people as we'd like yeah. we have to be mindful of that and I think it's really really important certainly to me and, and you know going back to that first question if I'm the only younger woman in doing this job then it's that problem is reflected in the force as well yes and so we, we need to proactively recruit to to equalize the force because that will always be a key to making communities more confident i suppose the police has an even bigger problem than, than even politics does in terms of how certain communities feel about it yeah particularly ethnic minority communities i think the relationships between the police in this region and the ethnic minority the ethnic minority communities is excellent and I, I know that's not the case everywhere. Yeah. And of course, there's pockets of distrust, but I, I do think it's really good here. And I think they continue to work on it and they know it's a priority. I think the, the chief takes a personal interest in it, and I think that's really important. I take a personal interest in it, and I think that's also, you know, that, that shows through. And, and I think there's proactive staff groups, um, there's, there's dedicated teams, and that's all really, really um, crucial to getting it right. Because actually... You know, if you're a victim of crime you, or you need somebody to trust, you've got to be able to turn to the force. You have to be able to. It's, it's, it's imperative. And how hard is it for you to find out the truth about how effective your local force is and um, how they truly deal with these things? I don't think it's... I think that, that anything big, any big organisation, there's certain information that it's harder to access than others. However... I think that the, the key to it is, is speaking to the public. The public will tell you. Yeah. And, of course, there will always be that subsection, the two, two sections of the public, the ones who are, you know, like the super fans who love the force and love the police and maybe they've a police family and, and all of that, and you've yeah. got to listen to them because it's important. And the people have had negative experiences and, and don't want to engage and they don't like the force. But, actually, day-to-day, people will tell you the truth. And they'll tell you what their experience was as a victim, what their experience is um, as a resident, you know, who they see, who they don't, who they know, who they don't. And there's, so there's that human aspect of it. And then, again, it's down to asking the right questions, getting the right information. And my experience is that they've been very open with me. You know, they tell me if there's something that's coming up and it's not very good. Um, <laughs> but, okay, but equally, well, yeah, but equally... Um, but equally, when there's good things, you, they have to be able to tell me that as well because we have to be able to sing their praises. And I think often, like anything, you know, when you're getting on and doing the job, sometimes you forget that bit. So with your proximity to them, is your office at a police station? Or nope. Where is it? It's separate. So my office is in, in a very boring office building. Uh, in a very boring business park that's right in the centre of the region so that people can get to it easily and, and it has sort of traditional office facilities but it's, <laughs> it's not in a police station. Some PCCs have them in a police station, mine's not. But, uh, and I don't think that's... I think aspects of that are a deliberate decision by by my predecessor. But I think also part of it's just practicalities of where the space to have yeah. an office. And in, so it's just, just you in that office and, and your staff. There's yeah. no other public services in that building no we've got um well we share it with a with a technology company i think um but uh we and we do have sort of specific projects in there so there's a few police officers who work in with us doing certain project work so there's a police officer who works on my violence reduction unit there's been a team of police officers who've worked on um taking a whole systems approach to domestic abuse Uh, so you know you do end up with police officers in there it's not an unwelcome environment it's not no police allowed it's just that it happens to be not in a police station but i can go to any police station that i want at any time and go and work there and walk in and 
you know, that's my prerogative. But the, I've never done that. I've never rocked up at 6am and been like, hi guys. Well, let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think you'd get away with it as long as you took like snacks and coffee. <laughs> but, but do you think that proximity is a, is a good thing just to have that physical distance where yeah. you effectively don't go native? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't, don't, I don't think, I mean, we're close, you know, it takes me three minutes to drive to the nearest police, well, to the, the headquarters. But yeah, I, and I think it's important to remain in constant contact with both the public and the force so you don't go native. But that's the same with any job, isn't it? It is, but you're, you're, it's, you're in a dual role, aren't you, as, as I suppose we discussed earlier, where you are... You represent the police in some ways, but you're there to scrutinise them as well. Yeah, that balance must be so difficult. Yeah, it, it can be. I mean, in terms of representing them, that's on a national level. So you know, that's me saying to to the Home Office, we do not have enough money for this. Yeah. You know, this isn't good enough. We need more resources here. Um, could we try this out, please? Uh, so you know, there's 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 that na- continual national conversation that goes on, and, and a lot of that comes from the interaction with the force and understanding what they need. Um, and, and advocating for you know the, the needs and the rights and the welfare of the officers, which is important. But in terms of holding them to account, I think that that's very much something that you, you know that's a trusted relationship that you have with the, the executive team, um, and it's it's about the, the big things, you know, the, the really big things. There are various mechanisms um, that, that help the public that people might not be aware of. Something called a community trigger where um, the public, if they feel that they haven't had a complaint effectively dealt oh, yeah. with, they can effectively pull the trigger, which doesn't seem like... The, when we're talking about crime, doesn't seem like the right language we should be using. <laughs> there's a lot of that kind of thing. Violent language. I'm not sure this has been thought through yet. Um, but there's something else that um, you predecessor about in the, the court observers panel, where people yeah. can uh, observe rape trials to assess whether a rape complainant's needs are properly considered and whether the complainant is being tried instead of the defendant. Yeah, and so they, they have access to certain types of information um, through, the, through the evidence process, and, and they're, they're there to, to support that victim and make sure it's... Because, of course, rape convictions, we could, we could get into probably a whole other hour about this, but women are com- continually failed by that system. Yes. You know, the number of things that make it... The number of cases that make it through to a conviction um, or even to court... Um, you know the experiences that that women have when they're going through those processes and it's predominantly women it's not all women and there are male victims and and that's very very important to note but predominantly um, female victims and so it's it's an extra check and balance to make sure that that those proceedings are going the way that they should Um, is that something that was just done here in Northumbria or is that a national thing I believe that it was something that was trialed here and, and it's something that's continuing here it may have been picked up other areas so how does it work? Who, who can go on the panel? Uh, they are specially qualified okay. people who apply and, and can be So appointed. it's not just like, I couldn't go, I want no, to go on the no, panel, no. I want to just go and do this. It's not like jewellery service. No, no, and they have, they have to have the, 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 that, that privilege to be able to access the information. And then presumably they've fed back to... Force, to us, to the, um, the uh, defence... And uh, you, sorry, the prosecution. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, that would be a, that, would, that, would, that would undermine the whole sorry. thing. But um, and what what do these people find? Do they say actually on the whole, it's all right? Or I think it's, it's mixed. I think it's mixed. And there's certain things that have come out of it. You know, so for example, um, being able to give evidence behind screens or by video yeah. link, and and all all of those measures that make things 
easier for victims, that make the criminal justice system more accessible for victims. Because actually the criminal justice system is really difficult to navigate yeah. and it's, it's really... Um, Obviously, for, for lots of different reasons, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of rules. And, and I think often people who have to be a witness or who are a victim going through a process where they're trying to seek justice, that's not easy. You know? and, and I think that until you get to the end of that process, you continue to be a victim over and over and over again, particularly with um, very personal crimes like rape or serious sexual assault or exploitation or, or so on, domestic abuse. So those, those innovations given... Uh evidence from the unscreened, these came out of a scheme that was piloted, I think they came, right? Yeah, they came out of a, a number of schemes that have been piloted in Northumbria. Northumbria's really led the way in terms of um, victims of, of domestic and, se- and sexual violence. Um, and, and again, that was something that was really, really important for Vera um, and continues through that. But actually, I think in general, and, and again, this is something that, that really attracted me to this role, I think this is an area, not just in police and crime, but in general in politics, where we will we will um, innovate and we'll try new things. And part of that's because we have to, because we've never had any money. <laughs> but part of it's because I think that's the way that we are up here. And I think that's a good thing. I know this is such a stupid question, but how important is funding and resourcing? You can, you can innovate, you can try these things. How much does funding bind your hands in terms of what you can do? It's crucial. I mean, you know, it will, it will always be... It's always the bottom line issue, isn't it? You'll get to a point where you can't innovate yourself out of, out of a lack of cash. You have to be able to pay for the baseline service and, and quite a lot more. I think the frustration in this role, actually in, in general in, in things that are government funded, is we need, things to be, um, we need things to be committed to. And so a lot of my funding is, is annualised, it's one-off. You know, here's, here's a million quid to do this for a year. You know, here's a here's two million quid to do this for three years. Your budgets on an annual basis. I've got no idea what I'm getting next year, and so all of that makes it very, very difficult for something as as big and important as the police force to plan for the future. And so, really, knowing where you stand, as much as the amount of money, is a is a problem. People will be shocked to hear that, especially when we're used to seeing budgets. I was shocked to hear that. Comprehensive spending <laughs> reviews. Or the autumn statement yeah, yeah. or whatever it got rebranded as, where the, you're talking about economic forecasts for five, six, seven years' time, and yet your funding is on such a short-term basis. It's on a short-term basis every year. And, and no guarantees no at all. No guarantees at all. None, no. You know, and so you, you know that... I mean, there's, there's obviously... You, you know, you will get a certain amount of money to, to manage a police force. But, yeah, and, and often that's very late. You know, this, it came late in the day this, this year. You've got accountants up all night trying to do your budget for, your, the, for the next year. And, and I think it, it's, it's, um, it is definitely a thing that people aren't aware of in public financing in general, but particularly with things like police forces. Everything is short-term, despite the fact that, actually... We need to plan, and we, and we will still do it regardless. We need to plan as a force for the long term. And that, that short-term budgeting, how much extra pressure does that already put on a system that's overstretched and on individuals? A lot, I think. And I, I think kind of you, it, it changes things like the attitude to, to risk, the attitude to, to paying for big 
investments or making big investments so for example I don't know technology or fleet yeah. or or something like that um, it, it's much more difficult to do that if you don't know what's coming over the hill in terms of financing and obviously you know the, the government have made quite a big thing of this year there's been a, there's been more put in than there has been for 10 years well that's because it's been cut for 10 years so of course there has been um, but it, it doesn't plug that gap and, and there's no guarantees for, for next year and so even now, it's a case of thinking, well, what will happen next year? Next year, we might be feeling more ramifications from something like Brexit, so there might be other pressures. And, and so it is quite difficult to make that, that long-term view, but at the same time, regardless of that, you have to plough on and do it because you've got to know where you're going to. You've got to know that in five years' time, crime type's going to change again, things are going to evolve again. We need to be continuing to be ahead of that technology game and continuing to prevent things so that we aren't creating the criminals of the future and, and, and all of that. Um- so how long do you envisage yourself being a police and crime commissioner oh, I don't for? know. I mean, do you know, I, I never, ever, ever envisage myself ever getting elected as anything. So I, I st- <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story, a true story. I, um, I had never planned to be a counsellor. I was sort of, um, I'd kind of had a bit of interest. I'd been doing some campaigning and, and so on with the local MP. And then um, I was kind of talked into standing on on an all-woman shortlist as yeah. a council candidate. Um, and I stood for a marginal and lost. And then I stood for a home seat and won. Um, and then very quickly I went on to the cabinet. And then when this, when Vera retired, uh, retired, she didn't retire. <laughs> Vera's very much the victims commissioner. Uh, when Vera moved on, I still didn't think, oh, that's for me. It was a case of a bit of a slow burn and thinking about, well, what difference could I make in the role? Um, and thinking about, you know, the, those, those low values, the changes, taking a public health approach, preventing crime, all of that stuff. And I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. And so I, I'm, I'm really enjoying the role. I think we're doing really, really good things. Um, I'm running again, so I'm up, up for election in May, vote for me. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I don't know how long I'll do it for. Certainly, the whole of the next term, and I don't know what's. I don't know what what um, you know what it was leading to for me. I, I think it's. I think I'm, it's about now, and it's about being ambitious for for the force, for the region, for the people, for delivering for for the people, and and that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. But it is true. You know, I'm 34 years old. There will have to be a future. <laughs> but you've got so much. To, I mean, it, that's the benefit, I suppose, of coming into this office. At this sort of ages, you've got so much time. Yes, <laughs> so but that's that's a great thing to have. Yeah, you know, I very well, I very well might see out a ten-year plan, yeah, which is <laughs> unusual for a politician. <laughs> no, yeah, but it's great for the public to kind yeah. of have that sense, isn't it? Well, I, I, I hope so. I think you know, when it it is a different proposition to an to an old white bloke, um, uh, and I think that hopefully that's interesting and exciting for people, and that and they see that as an opportunity. When people talk about. Uh, the talent in politics, and they tend to think specifically about Westminster. Mm. I say, where's the next Labour leader? And I know Labour's going through a leadership contest at the moment, but what sort of talent is there? Now, those of us who watch it closely can point to a, a, a decent amount of talent on the back benches. But when you look at, say, Scotland or, or Metro mayors or police and crime commissioners, so much of that Labour talent isn't in Westminster, it's out mm. elsewhere in the UK. Um, I suppose the question I'm asking is, had the Labour Party been in a different position in the last, say, 10 years and had been more competitive and perhaps won at least one of those four, would Westminster have been a route you'd have gone down? I don't think so. I don't know. It's really difficult because it's hard to put yourself into that different 
picture. And of course, every time there's been an election, and let's face it, there's been a few, people have said, are you, go- are you going to run? Are you going to put yourself forward for a, for a seat? And, and I've never felt like it was something that I wanted to do, partially because I am a massively regionalist. You know, so much of my motivation is, is this place and the people here and, and a love of, of where I'm from and wanting to do stuff for the people rather than, you know, being on that train to Westminster, I certainly would never go and represent somewhere outside of, of my home area. Um, and I'm not criticising anyone who has. People are really, there's a lot of those people are very good at representing people. But I never really got to a stage where I thought, you know, Westminster was for me. Yeah. And Why is that? I think it might be a product of where we're at. It might be um, a product of the fact that actually I come from a local authority background. And so as a cabinet member in local authority, again, you've got direct decision-making power um, and direct ability to make a difference straight away. And I like that. You know, I, I yeah. like to be able to, to make a difference um, straight away um, in terms of policy rather than simply in terms of people. It's got to be both. Um, and so it might be that. Um, but I think, again, that tie to the region. I think the other thing is I do believe that, that, we, should, that we should be able to have um, good, powerful political influence from our regions. We're really lucky here. We've got great people, you know, great council leaders, um, great, ta- great MPs in our region. Um, and so actually a, an opportunity to do something that I'm very passionate about um, in a policy area that I'm really passionate about in the region that I really care about is, is fantastic for me. But imagine, people will be listening to this, listening to a young, powerful, impressive Labour politician, thinking, imagine if you were standing in this leadership contest now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not sure that... I mean, I'm, I'm swears away from that. Um, but it's been an interesting contest to watch, and it's good to see... It is good to see um, a, a contest where women are a real option. Um, and particularly, um, you know, Angela Rain is a good friend of mine, she's running for the deputy leadership. And I, I think that, you know, the way that this contest is changing that Labour narrative and is, I think, modernising it and is think, making us think about different things is, 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 really, is really, really positive for our party and really positive to the country because I think that we're getting to the point now where these are real, proper, op- they, they'll provide a real, proper opposition. And that's what we need. But is there any part of you when you watch the leadership or the deputy leadership contest thinks, I could, I could win that or I could make a difference in that or I could lay a marker down or I could set this contest alight? <laughs> I think it is quite alight. Do you not think it's quite alight? Well, I mean, re- relatively, yeah, relatively, relatively, yeah. it feels like the, all three leadership candidates can't tell the party some hard truths about the last few years, or even about the years 1997 to 2010. Yeah, and we have to personal. we have to be able to do that. I, I think that um, I think it's you know I think it's really difficult to get in to be in that position and to be um, to be authentic. I, I think they're all authentically themselves, and I think that's positive. Yes. Um, I think that. Do I think that there's there could be other routes to leadership of the party? Yeah. Why not? You know, why does it have to be an MP? But as it stands, you know, our political systems is such, are such that that, that's, that is the, the route to being the Labour leader or um, to being a cabinet member or to, to, to holding power in that way. But, you know, maybe it does need a shake-up. <laughs> well, at some point, if, if Labour wants to be competitive, I, I think whether people are left-wing, right-wing, Labour, Tory, SNP, whatever, people want to see the most talented people in a position where they could conceivably run the country. Mm-hmm and you are a talented, successful person, 
and you're doing a phenomenal job here at the north, up in the northeast. But people listening to this would go at some point. Surely you have to go there and and try well, and become did. prime minister. <laughs> well, we'll see. I don't think we've ever had a Geordie prime minister, have we? Well, I think Tony Blair's sport in Newcastle, and maybe that's as close as Definitely you're going to get. Definitely not, George. <laughs> <laughs> you could... Um, it's tough on crime. Yep, tough on crime. You know, all these things that people want from for the, the Labour Party, you're kind people, of... Yeah. You're trying here in, uh, in Northumbria. Well, maybe, maybe you can start that campaign for me, but... Well, maybe starts so we'll, today. Maybe so we'll get that one, this one, out of the way first and see how... See, well, let's see how they get on <laughs> once they've been elected. Fair enough. <laughs> we'll, give them a, we'll give them a go at it. <laughs> No, I, I, I actually I feel really positive about the Labour leadership contest at the moment. I do think that we are heading to a much more positive place. I'm definitely feeling that um, that people um, are relatively engaged by by the candidates. Um, I'm certainly now much more able to go and have a conversation on a doorstep that that is more varied, um, and I think that's that's a positive thing. So I'm kind of I'm now really looking forward to the conclusion of it because I don't know anyone who hasn't voted yet. <laughs> so if oh, we really? could just crack on and let it be done, that would be great. We're very good at a long contest. Let's see what happens, Kim. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. There you go, Kim McGuinness. Wasn't that brilliant? There was so much in there. Um, f- I mean, primarily, fully understanding what a police and crime commissioner is and what they can and can't do and the parameters of the role, but also the freedom they've got to be able to change people's lives for the better, the real impact they can have, as well as the restrictions on them. I cannot believe they're not allowed political staff, not even one. That just seems incredible. Um, and then obviously just the, the limitations, the, the sheer size of the area that they cover. In Kim's case, especially Northumbria, is huge. But that was just, oh man, I, I know I say this all the time. But I could have spoken to Kim for hours and hours um, about somebody. Really, you want to break it down into the, the specifics of the role. You, you want to really get into the, into the crime and policing bit as well. Um, quite apart from the politics, but that was just great. And uh, as I said, uh, just a great reminder that um, some of our most talented politicians are not in London. So that is always uh, reassuring to know and good for the future. Um, as always, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Sign up to the mailing list, mattford.com slash mailing hyphen list. Um, I'm going to start using that more often and um, I will announce guests there first and things like that and uh, tour dates and whatever. So you can um, find out who's coming up um ahead of anyone else on there, mattford.com slash mailing hyphen list. And you can get tickets to all my shows, whether it's live political parties or the Brexit Pursued by a Bear tour dates at mattford.com slash live. Wash your hands regularly. Look after yourself and I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. 
You will be timed. <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.